0: Bridgebank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridgebank, a division of Western Alliance Bank, Bridgebank. Be Bold, venture wisely.
1: Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's hey podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mindshift, Right Nowish and more all tell the stories of the bay and beyond
3: From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum. The U.S. has begun a comprehensive review of the legacy of federal boarding schools for Indigenous children. Interior Secretary Deb Holland wants particular emphasis placed on cemeteries and possible burial sites after the recent discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves at residential schools in Canada. For more than a century, tens of thousands of Native American children were forcibly sent to one of 350 U.S. boarding schools, some in California, where they were barred from speaking their languages and practicing their traditions. Those who survived were changed by what Holland called unspoken traumas. We learn more after this news. This is Forum, I'm Nina Kim. After the discovery of nearly a thousand unmarked graves at Native residential schools in Canada, the U.S. in June launched its own review of federal boarding schools for Indigenous children. From the 1800s through to the 1960s, the U.S. forcibly sent tens of thousands of Native children to schools, some in California, that were designed to suppress their languages, beliefs, and identities. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, in announcing the federal investigation, pledged the department would address the intergenerational impact of the schools. And joining me now is Lauren Peters, a member of the Anunga tribe in Alaska, and a doctoral student at UC Davis, who has been working to find and document Alaska Native children who are buried in Native American boarding school cemeteries Lauren Peters, welcome to Forum. Kia Good morning. So glad to have you here. And I understand that one of the Alaska Native children buried at a boarding school cemetery was your great-great-aunt Sophia, who in 1901 was sent all the way to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little bit about her? How old was she then?
4: Well, she and her sister were 8 and 10 when they were first taken from St. Paul Island, which is one of the Priblough Islands in the middle of the Bering Sea. And they're sent 400 miles south to an Alaska island to the Jesse Lee home. Um, They're taken by the uh, Methodist missionaries who ran the home there. And then um, after Irene, her sister died and is buried in Alaska, um, Sophia was sent 4,000 miles away to Carlisle Indian School.
3: And why was she sent four thousand miles from her home?
4: That's that's a big question, isn't it? Um, I've read that uh, that kids from Alaska were sent to Carlisle if they're either promising or troublesome. Um, but while she was there, and I think we should stop calling them schools, because while she was there, she spent most of her time in the outings program, which is um, is domestic labor um, and or um, or field labor for the for the boys. And so um, she spent most of her time out, out in that way, and became sick while she was gone, and came back and died a year later in um,
3: 1906. What did she become sick with? Do you know if that's what, it co- that, what that's most what caused her death?
4: Most, yeah, most of the kids got uh, TB, or they called it consumption. Um, it's it's a it's a disease of neglect and um, and poverty.
3: How did you piece her story together?
4: That's a great question. So I didn't find Sophia. Sophia was lost. Um, She's not in any records in the tribe. She's not in any records um, with the aunties. Um, Nobody knew that she existed. Um, And so I got a phone call from a Clinkett elder named Bob Sam in um, 2017 saying, there are 14 Alaska Natives buried at Carlisle Indian School, and there's three from your region. Meaning the Aleutian and Priblough Islands, and could I help find the families? And I said, of course. And the first name he gave me was Sophia's. And I started in with the Dickinson School archives, and I found her student records. And then Ray Hudson published a book, um, in, I think in 2018, called Family After All, which talks about the Jesse Lee home in Unalaska, and she and Irene um, are all over it as far as um, you know, talking about Irene's death and about Sophia being sent out to Carlisle Indian School with a group of others.
3: And were you surprised to learn she was at Carlisle because of your understanding of what happened at Carlisle Indian School? I was shocked.
4: Um, You know, I think of Carlisle Indian School, I think of the lower 48 Native people that were sent there. And I didn't know that people all the way from Alaska, all the way to Puerto Rico, were sent to Carlisle Indian School. And so Pratt, um, Henry Pratt ran Carlisle on the East Coast, and his colleague was Reverend um, Sheldon Jackson, who, was, who ran the same sort of racket on the West Coast and in Alaska. And they were in cahoots. So they would, you know, they would send kids over to, um, to Carlisle if, you know, if they had a place open. And they, they made money from government contracts. They made money from uh, church donations. They made money from, um, you know, hiring these kids out to work. And in Alaska, a lot of these kids worked in canneries and in um, woodmills.
3: And do you know why Sophia was initially removed from her family to go to the Protestant orphanage that ultimately then sent her to Carlisle? Right. So in 1865,
4: we had the, um, the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the Southern Blacks. and In 1867, the U.S. bought uh, Alaska from the Russians. And with it came these two islands in the middle of the Bering Sea um, who were captive people. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service took over the operation of the fur seal harvest. And um, if you were not making a profit for the fur seal harvest, you were drained on the bottom line. So when Sophia and Irene were orphaned, normally they would be taken in by their step siblings. They had 13 of them. But the... Um, the Methodist went directly to the Fish and Wildlife Service agent and said, do you have any orphans for us? And they were happy to offload the cost of raising a couple orphans on St. Paul Island.
3: I see. And it was a Methodist orphanage. I'm sorry. I think I misspoke earlier. Well, I want to bring two more people into the conversation now. William Bauer is an American Indian history professor at the University of Nevada, Los Angeles. Angeles, an enrolled tribal member of the Wailakey and Konkow Tribes of the Round Valley in northern Mendocino County. William Bauer, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: Also, Lindsay Montgomery is with us, assistant professor of anthropology and co-author of Objects of Survivance, a material history of the American Indian School Experience at the University of Arizona. Lindsay Montgomery, also glad to have you here as well. Thanks so much for the invitation to talk with you all. And I'm wondering if I could start with you, Lindsay Montgomery, just to help me understand the genesis of these schools in the 1800s. Lauren Peters mentioned the name Richard Henry Pratt. What yeah. ideology informed these schools? What was behind their creation?
5: Yeah, so so Pratt is kind of the most iconic um, of the kind of school teachers that were operating these boarding schools in the 1860s and 70s. And This really became a kind of key part of the federal government's approach to the quote-unquote Indian problem, as it was called at the time, uh, during the 1870s uh, under the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. So Grant is kind of responding to this unique moment in American history where... The government sees the kind of end or close of what was called the Indian War period, which was the kind of most tumultuous period of uh, warfare against Native folks. And so Grant is coming off this moment of kind of complete Um, and utter warfare against Native people and is seeing a new landscape in which there's only about 250,000 Native people still living in the United States or what would become the United States at the time. And he's saying to himself and other kind of uh, Christian-minded folks that we need to come up with a better way to deal with this kind of remaining native population. And what he comes up with is what's called the Grants Peace Policy. And education was a fundamental part of that peace policy because it was believed that education was this kind of humane way of assimilating native people into the larger American society and making them kind of self-sufficient citizens who wouldn't need uh, government funding to be able to kind of thrive within um, the dominant white society. So education became this kind of linchpin uh, of the government's kind of assimilationist program that then people like Pratt went out and kind of executed.
3: My understanding is that his school was one of the flagship schools, Pratt schools, and that it was Carlisle.
5: Yes, yes. So Carlisle opens in 1879 and it's a converted military barracks, which I think is actually really important to note because a lot of the places that became boarding schools were converted military barracks. So it really shows this kind of transition from this kind of total warfare approach to uh, dealing with Native Americans to this assimilationist approach. So Carlisle opens its doors in 1879 and it, it brings in native students from across the United States and it especially recruited native students from, from leaders and uh, chiefs of those tribes that had really been at the vanguard of the Indian War period. So the first class of students at Carlisle is the children of uh, prominent Lakota leaders.
3: And can you add to Lauren's description of what life was like for children at that school? Sophia was doing labor, she discovered. Was that a common practice? What else would happen there, especially when when indigenous children would first arrive?
5: Yeah, so so at Carlisle, Pratt was one of the innovators of um, what Susan talked about, the, the outing program. Uh, and so that outing program uh, happened primarily during the summer months, where students would be uh, sent out to live in white homes in the area of of Pennsylvania and to work as domestic laborers. Now, during the 10-month school year, they followed a really regimented curriculum. They had to uh, do daily chores. They had to do daily drills. That was a critical part of the kind of bodily training that they had to do was marching and drilling um, in military kind of, uh, military style. Uh, they had to uh, have regular classes and things like reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, they also had a daily prayer. Uh, they had to uh, follow a kind of, um, they did daily Bible readings, they, they went to church. Uh, And they also did a lot of physical labor. So these schools were self-sustaining. And so all, especially in very rural reservations where a lot of these boarding schools were. So students would be doing metalworking. They would be out harvesting crops. Uh, Women would be uh, learning how to do needlepoint or what was called domestic arts. probably the most kind of profound moment and the most traumatic moment for many students was that first entry into these boarding schools where they were systematically stripped of all kind of outward appearances of quote unquote Indianness, right? So their hair was cut. Uh, They were given a, a new outfit. They were made to have They were made to take baths. They were given um, new clothes. Often their shoes or clothes were too small um, and couldn't fit them properly. And so there's many stories from these boarding schools of students who were permanently um, disfigured, had disfigured feet because they were made to wear Mm. these small shoes and and march in them. So Mm. it was a very traumatic kind of moment um, when they first entered these schools.
3: We're talking about the 19th and 20th century Native American boarding schools in the U.S., and we'll have more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. is launching investigations into burial sites at federal boarding schools for Native American children after the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves at similar schools in Canada, and the discoveries continue there. We're also taking a deeper look into the 19th and 20th century Native American boarding schools in the U.S. and in California, and we're talking with Lindsay Montgomery, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Arizona. Also, Lauren Peters is with us, a doctoral student in Native American Studies at the University of California, Davis, where Lauren is working on a project to find and document Alaska Native children who died and are buried in boarding school cemeteries. William Bauer is also with us, American Indian History Professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And William Bauer, I want to ask you now about schools in California. I'm wondering what you could tell us about the schools here, how many there were, where they were.
2: Yeah, so there was there's two sets of, of boarding schools here in in the state of California. Uh, there was first kind of the, the, uh, the off-reservation boarding school, which was uh, the, the, the most well known one was uh, the Sherman Indian Institute, which is currently which is still located in uh, Riverside, California. Uh, and then uh, each, re- and then there were also kind of boarding schools on reservations too. So where I'm, I'm an tr- enrolled citizen of the Round Valley Indian Tribes of Northern California, located in Mendocino County. And so there was a boarding school lo- located uh, on our reservation. There was another uh, boarding school on the Hoopa Valley Reservation uh, a- as well. Uh, and so you see kind of a, 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 a kind of a diverse kind of educational experiences for, for American Indian children in the 19th and 20th century, where some. We, you know, had these boarding schools on their reservations, and then some kind of left, you know, left their left their homelands and, and attended schools uh, in in other parts of the state.
3: And what do we know about how they were run and children's experiences there? Were they run like Carlisle?
2: Yeah. So the so the Sherman Institute was very much was very similar. It was kind of modeled after uh, the the Carlisle model, so to speak. Right. So that uh, students were you know when they came to school. Uh, they might have their hair cut on entering school. They were often mm-hmm. dressed in military uniforms and then asked to kind of drill, you know, do kind of military drills around the the, the school grounds. Uh, there was then emphasis on English only instruction. Uh, and um, and as, as was noted earlier, there there was a, a program called the the Outing Program, um, where in the summer, students would go work in uh, throughout Southern California, for instance, uh, you know many boys. Would spend their summers working on citrus farms uh, in and around Riverside. Uh, girls would be domestic servants in for people in like Anaheim and and other cities in in Southern California.
3: And Lindsay Montgomery, of course, what sort of prompted um, Interior Secretary Interior Secretary Deb Holland to launch this comprehensive review of the legacy of Native American boarding schools in the U.S. was the finding of of hundreds of unmarked graves now surpassing a thousand or so as investigations in Canada continue. Why would children be dying? Lauren Peters mentions that her aunt, great, great aunt had consumption, but still hundreds and hundreds of unmarked graves. Can you shed some light on this?
5: Yeah, I mean, Lauren's uh, grandmother, great-grandmother's experience was definitely not unique. Unfortunately, in these boarding schools um, like Carlisle, uh, students would die from a lot of, for various reasons. A lot of it, uh, as was noted, was associated with tuberculosis um, and other kind of infectious diseases like cholera. Uh, influenza was a common cause of death as well. Uh, A lot of it uh, also stemmed from long-term malnutrition. Uh, Students often had very uh, kind of meager meals. Um, These were provided uh, by by either the church or the federally funded um, uh, teachers who would, and cooks who would would often give them these kind of very meager uh, rations of food. Um, So malnutrition was a huge issue. Uh, students, one of the reasons why we know only a fraction of how many native youth actually passed away in these boarding schools is for a variety of reasons. One, uh, many students were actually sent home if they began to show symptoms of sickness like tubercul- associated with TB or influenza. And so many of these students would die either in transit back to their home communities or soon after they arrived at their home communities. And so those deaths often are missing from uh, the notes in these schools of who would have died. So there's, a, there's a, many students that we know were contracting these infectious diseases in schools. And then we, we don't know uh, when they died or, or we have no record of that. There's also uh, at places like Carlisle, they moved the cemetery. uh, And so that actually displaced some bodies. Uh, There's many, there's several graves at Carlisle that actually contain multiple bodies. Um, And so those are unknown who those, those bodies belong to, what communities they belong to, who to repatriate them to because they were buried one on top of each other uh, with no no grave marker. Um, So bodies get displaced. And there's also a kind of lack of archival records documenting deaths. So for example, at Carlisle, there's what's called the dead files. And about half of the alphabet of those dead files is missing. There's no record of those students, basically L uh, L through Z, who died at Carlisle. There's no record of them. So there's a kind of archival neglect here that's happening uh, associated with these boarding schools that makes it really difficult to know how many youth actually died.
3: William Bauer, the other thing that's emerging as more pieces are being written, especially recently related to the impact of these boarding schools, was just the incredible trauma and the, the tremendous effects in terms of mentally emotionally spiritually and and ultimately physically as well also saw that there had been a lawsuit that was filed against the Sioux Falls diocese for alleged rape and sexual abuse would some of that contribute to this to the to well, the kind of deaths yeah that we were seeing well,
2: yeah sorry for interrupting um, yeah absolutely I mean I, I think you know the students, uh, who went to these schools and endured kind of enormous kind of amounts of kind of trauma in, in their experiences. I mean, just kind of think about the, the pain of being kind of taken away from home and separated from one's family. Um, you know, my grandmother uh, attended the the Stewart uh, Indian School here in Carson City, Nevada, uh, and she would write back to her father in the 1930s. So she attended the school in the 1930s, and she, she wrote to her father, just asking, you know, him, <laughs> asking him to to be able to come home and, and, and reunite with, with family members. And she you know, she attended two boarding schools and um, before she passed away, I, we had an oral history interview with her. And, and that was one of the, the parts of her life that she, she really did not want to kind of talk about. Even you know, later in life, there was the, you know, she didn't want to really kind of discuss kind of attending kind of the off-reservation boarding school system. Um, and I think even students endured kind of horrible forms of, of just treatment from teachers and sometimes from other, uh, other students at the school uh, I've heard, you know, you've heard hear stories of students, um, you know, if they don't speak English properly, right? If they, they, they're coming to the school, like only speaking their own indigenous language, there's only there's only this um, English only instruction. And if they couldn't speak English properly, they might have a dunce cap put on their head and made to sit in the corner. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of trauma, that kind of mistreatment, I think, obviously kind of resonated with students. Uh, and just the, the pain of, of some of these other kind of experiences. Uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, students were often at, forced to kind of have their hair cut when they first went to these schools. And so for some indigenous peoples, having one's hair cut is a sign of mourning. And so, you know, you kind of have this kind of traumatic, transformative experience uh, that is linked to, to kind of mourning in coming from one's kind of cultural perceptions. And so I think you see kind of even from the, from the moment they leave their homes, to their time at the schools, is just kind of this kind of enormous kind of trauma that uh, affected indigenous children.
3: I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. We're talking about 19th and 20th century Native American boarding schools in the U.S. and in California. Do you have a story to share related to Indigenous boarding schools? Please give us a call, 866-733-6786, if you'd like to tell us about it, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. What are your reactions to the stories and history our guests are sharing? Or maybe you have thoughts on how the U.S. can address the historical traumas associated with indigenous boarding schools. We're talking with William Bauer, American Indian history professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, an enrolled tribal member of the Wailaki and Concow Tribes of the Round Valley in northern Mendocino County. Lindsay Montgomery's with us, author of Objects of Survivance: A Material History of the American Indian School Experience, the University of Arizona, And also Lauren Peters, member of the Anunga Tribe, doctoral student in Native American Studies at the University of California, Davis, working on a project to find and document Alaska Native children who died at Native American boarding schools. Lauren Peters, your great-great-aunt was not the only person in your family who attended the boarding schools, right?
4: Yes, my, um, my mother and all of her siblings went to Mount Edgecombe, in Sitka, Alaska, and that was about a 1,000 miles away from where they um, were living. But to them, it was an opportunity um, to get higher education because their schools only went up to eighth grade. And um, and Mount Edgecombe is still considered a very good school and a very fair school to Native people. But then she went and got her um, teaching certificate and thinking that she had a job back at Mount Edgecombe returned only to find out their job had been given away, so she ended up at Wrangell Institute, and Wrangell is um, absolutely terrible. And she mm-hmm. never talked about it, but she was um, very hyper aware of uh, of sexual abuse. And I have a friend now who's uh, who attended Wrangell as a as a four and five year old uh, the year my mom taught there, and he tells of terrible things. He only spoke uh, Yupik. Um, and he was uh, beaten and put in closets for not being able to speak English as a four and five-year-old. His head was shaved there, stripped and hosed down um, as a little child. And um, and he, you know he tells about terrible sexual abuse that happened there. And my mom would have seen all of that. And um, and she la- lasted there through her contract for a year, and then and then left to teach at King Cove. But um, but I think that always stayed with her.
3: Hmm. William Bauer, listening to Lauren, it, it makes me realize that the impact of these schools is really complex. She's talking about how some people saw the schools as an opportunity to learn English. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the complexity of this legacy?
2: Absolutely, um, and this is not to kind of minimize or kind of downplay the you know the the, the trauma, the the experiences of students, the the the, the deaths that are associated with yes. them. Yes, but kind of also, Indigenous peoples were able to kind of turn so the, the schools to their own ends, or at least try to get what they wanted out of the school experience. And I kind of, and kind of spoke to this uh, a little bit, right, so when the when the off-reservation boarding schools were created, um, Native leaders, especially, you know, on the, on the Great Plains, wanted children to go to these off-reservation boarding schools where they can learn, uh, learn to read and write in English. And one of the re- core, or one of the most important reasons for that is that they wanted to kind of have people to be able to kind of read and write, uh, or to read treaties with the United States, right? So the United States has a long history of defrauding and violating treaties that they have with indigenous nations. Mm. And so native leaders uh, understood or saw that if, if, if they can kind of have children read English, they can have their own people kind of reading the treaties and help defend themselves against kind of United States uh, ongoing systems uh, of, of colonialism. Uh, I think another point that Lauren had mentioned earlier too Uh, It has to do with orphans, right? So in the late 19th and early 20th century, the United States has a a policy called allotment, which is kind of it's it, it like the boarding school system was intended to kind of assimilate indigenous peoples into the United States. Uh, but land allotment was basically just this large scale kind of system of land dispossession uh, over the course of 60 years, indigenous peoples lost uh, 70% of the land base in the late 19th and early 20th century. And what these federal policies do is create systems of poverty on reservations and or in near indigenous communities and so often in some instances. Native families couldn't support and couldn't care for orphans, and so they saw that maybe sending the children to, the, to these to these schools was to make sure that they did have clothing, that, to make sure that they did have food, um, and then they were getting kind of a, a, an education. Um, and then the third thing and I think this, and I think Lauren was kind of speaking to this as well, is especially in the in the 20th century, as we see kind of federal Indian policies, or, you know, federal education policies towards uh, Indigenous peoples a change a little change over time. Is that Native people saw in these schools opportunities to get skills. And so there is a shift in, say, the 1920s and then the 1930s away from this kind of purely vocational training to other types of kind of vocational, uh, other types of of education, like uh, training Native peoples to go into kind of clerical work or other kind of maybe kind of white collar, what we would consider to be kind of white collar work. And so Native people saw, especially kind of in their mid 20th century, away in these schools to kind of gain skills that they otherwise couldn't gain uh, in in kind of rural reservation schools uh, in the United States.
3: Well, the listener Roger writes: To what extent was the Indian school system a result of good intent, or was it all control and exploitation? Lindsay Montgomery, curious to get your reaction to that. You had talked about education initially, right, as as being viewed as some lesser harm. (laughs) And I'm wondering how you contextualize that. Well,
5: it's hard to kind of project, you know, um, it's hard to project into the past what people's intentions were, whether they had a good or malicious intent in doing this. Um, what what I think is pretty clear from what we know about Grant and this peace policy was that the the missionaries who he was working with, which were primarily Episcopalian and Quaker missionaries, really had this kind of um, approach to Native people that that viewed them as uh, Kind of, I guess it's essentially paternalistic. They they viewed native people as um, a kind of backwards children that needed to be guided towards civilization, and that Christianity and particularly Protestantism would be the best way of uplifting them um, and bringing them into American society. So I think the intent of the Christian missionaries was uh, was kind of rooted in uh, this. Uh, Christian morality uh, that had a kind of um, good intention, I guess, in that sense, um, and that the outcome would be incorporation into American society in a nonviolent way. Um, But obviously, it did not pan out that way. As uh, William was talking about, these were very violent places.
3: And also, William, you have talked about how the U.S. government, that there is evidence that they also viewed these schools as a way to maybe avoid their, their treaty obligations as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, the slogans, Richard Henry Pratt's slogan for the boarding schools was kill the Indian, save the man. Right? So these schools had a kind of a, an eliminatory bent to them, meaning that they, they intended to eliminate indigenous peoples as indigenous peoples and absorb them into the broader poly, body politic. At the same time, it was a desire to kind of gain and to acquire Indigenous peoples' lands. So what the goal of the schools, right, is to take ind- indigenous children from their homelands, from the reservation land bases, put them into boarding schools, and that, and then eventually kind of the goal was to assimilate American Indian children. And therefore there wouldn't, there wouldn't necessarily if there was no more indigenous peoples living on and near reservation communities, there's no obligation for, for the United States to uphold its 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 treaties with indigenous nations.
3: We're talking with William Bauer, American Indian history professor at the University of Nevada, Lindsay Montgomery, assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona, Lauren Peters at the University of California Davis, a doctoral student working to document Alaska Native children who died and are buried in Native American boarding school cemeteries. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break as we talk about the 19th and 20th century Native American boarding schools in the U.S. and California. And we want to hear from you, our listeners, 866 733 the number 8667336786 stay with us i'm mina kim up tomorrow on Forum,
1: we'll talk about the
3: precautions we should take with unvaccinated children following new evidence about the Delta variant. Plus, author Shukri Saeed Sal joins us. Her new book chronicles her childhood as a nomadic goat herder in Somalia and her migration to California. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum, and you can follow me at MKim Reporter. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. has begun a comprehensive review of the Legacy of Federal Boarding Schools for Indigenous Children, announced in June by Interior Secretary Deb Haaland. And we're talking about that legacy with William Bauer of the Round Valley Indian Tribes in northern Mendocino County, Lindsay Montgomery, author of Optics of Survivance, A Material History of the American Indian School Experience. Lauren Lauren Peters, a student in Native American Studies at the University of California at Davis, and working on a project to document Alaska Native children who died at boarding schools. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to share your reactions or questions to what you are hearing, any stories that you'd like to share related to Indigenous boarding schools, any thoughts on how the U.S. can address this trauma and legacy, 866-733-6786, the number, email address, forum at kqbd.org. You can post comments on twitter or facebook at kqed forum peter in san francisco thanks for waiting hi peter
6: hey good morning can you hear me i can okay so i just wanted to point out that uh, most people may not be aware of the carlisle school's uh, relation to american uh, football the nfl that pop warner uh, coached Mm -hmm. them um in the early 20th century and they innovated the game The, the, the trick plays the um Handoff Fake, the, the Overhead Spiral Path. Those were all innovated by the Carlisle Indian School, and they competed very well with the um, uh, Ivy League schools. And um, I think that it's sort of a lost um, history of their contribution to America's most popular sport. And I just wanted to recommend there's a great Radio Lab uh, podcast that people can listen to called Ghost of Football Past from Radio lab uh, and, and WNYC Studios, which has a great deep dive on this.
3: Mm. Well, well, thank you, Peter. And listener Robert similarly writes, can your guests speak of Jim Thorpe of the Sac and Fox Nation who attended Carlisle? Can they share with us lesser known stories of the famous Olympic champion? Lindsay Montgomery, do you want to start?
5: Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it is, It is interesting, Carlisle's relationship to football. Um, I I know less about Jim Thorpe's kind of personal experience at Carlisle, um, but of course he was a member of the football team, the Carlisle Indians, as it was called at the time. And what's interesting about football in relationship to Carlisle is that Pratt was actually very apprehensive at first about having a football team because he thought it would confirm people's already negative stereotypes of Indigenous people as being kind of brute and 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 savage, right, in this kind of intense physical game that football was at the time. Back then, football was actually much more played like rugby than it was uh, like the kind of game that we watch today. But he became convinced by his students who actually advocated to have a football team to begin with. Uh, and he was co- he became convinced that having this football team would actually, instead of showing indigenous savagery, would prove that indigenous people could play this kind of gentlemanly game that other young men in Ivy Leagues like Harvard or at places like the University of Chicago were playing. And so it became this kind of, um, publicity, positive publicity for the, the kind of assimilatory program at Carlisle. But um, I, I know less about Jim Thorpe. I can't. Uh, I <laughs> that's that's all
3: right. <laughs> Jean writes, when I heard the news about the children's graves, they found the first thing that came to my mind is Relief. Relief because my mother survived boarding school in Alaska. Her and her older siblings went to boarding school in a town that was inaccessible by road. They were not allowed to practice their culture, their religion, or their language. If they attempted to speak their language, they would be hit with a wooden ruler on their knuckles. My mom's survival came at a price. She wasn't even raised with her younger siblings and didn't see her parents or siblings for long periods of time. She did go on to college, however. She went to Gonzaga University, where she met my dad. They got married in her hometown of Ketchikan and moved to Wisconsin, where my dad's family is from. Relief from Jean, I do want to ask you, Lauren Peters, you attended a service for your great-great-aunt last month. Can you explain what that was for?
4: Well, we had two services. We had one at the at Carlisle and we had one at St. Paul. And um, we uh, we before we opened Sophia's grave, we um, she was baptized Russian Orthodox because that was our first colonialist. and um, And so the community wanted her to have a Russian Orthodox priest there. And we did. We, there was one there locally, and um, he was wonderful. And uh, then the next ceremony we had was a transfer ceremony, which was with um, the Army, where the Army gives um, us a flag and some medallions from Arlington Cemetery, and we transfer Sophia's remains to um, our family, where then she was flown up to St. Paul. It took her three attempts to get in because the weather is so inclement up there. Um, The day she got in, we uh, brought her into town, my son, Andrew is also a a student at UC Davis in biology and he was I was lucky that he was there with me because he was her champion. He made all the decisions on um, her behalf on her person so I didn't have to and he was her um, uh, he he brought her grade from the anthropologist to the transfer tent and the transfer tent to the transfer ceremony and then accepted her again at St. Paul um, where my other son joined us, and we had a full Russian Orthodox service for her at the church there, and then we paraded up to the graveyard. My younger son Lucas carried um, her cross that is is buried with her, that marks her grave, and my son Andrew carried her person and laid her to rest there. And the most wonderful thing about the actual the actual community all getting together to bury their their ancestor that, that was coming home was that she was sung into the grave in Unungam Tinu, which is our language. And um, I I really felt that she was at peace at that point.
3: And what did it mean to you to know that?
4: Well, it's a a huge relief. And and how lucky that we are that her grave was marked, right? All these other kids in in Canada and across the United States are buried at unmarked graves, and their families might never get them home again. Or might never know their identity. And we had a a direct line that was, you know, of documents that was confirmed with uh, the anthropologist's report. And this, you know, we're 99% sure that this is Sophia. And we felt really good about that. I just felt like, um, you know, there's one less child in that cemetery. And that's a good thing.
3: Let me go to caller Phil in Richmond. Hi, Phil.
6: Hi, I just want to mention, I kind of confirm many of the things that are being said today. I worked at a relocation center in Madeira, California, late 60s, early 70s, and it was a converted radar station. So for the first couple of years, they maintained the bob-wire fencing all the way around it, and it would be like having to have a security pass to get in and out. But it was uh, uh, essentially it was cultural genocide is what the name of the program was. This is right at the end of the Eisenhower administration before they shut the program down. And this was one of the programs that was shut down. Fortunately, uh, the Alcatraz occupation was happening about the same time, so many of the students were able to go over to Alcatraz and uh, participate and and regain some of their Indian identity from the, from this mm-hmm. Dale Carnegie run. Center that was actually a a contract through the Bureau of Indian Affairs with the Philco Ford Corporation Education Division. And, um, well, yeah, Phil,
3: thank you for, for sharing your personal experience there. And, William Bauer, when I think about what Interior Secretary Holland is trying to do looking at the lasting consequences of facilities like Phil is describing in residential Indian boarding schools, and also identifying and locating student burial sites, known and possible ones as well, and hearing what that means to Lauren. The department is embarking on a long process, right? This is gonna take some time.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh you know, the, the amount of records that are going to have to be got, done, you know, gone through are, are enormous. Uh, for instance, I've done some research at the, the, the National Archives in, Southern, in Riverside, California now, uh, and they, uh, they, they, they do have kind of uh, folders and folders of like just student case files of, of, of files on each and, and every student, for instance, uh, that is just kind of mountains of, pa- of paperwork, and that's just one boarding, you know, one off-reservation boarding school. That's not the kind of the, the entire scope of them across the United States. Uh, moreover, they're going to have to do these kind of uh, these investigations to you know find these cemeteries and, and these graveyards, uh, and then do the kind of the hard work of of uh, you know of, of going through that information. So yeah, this is going to be a, a long and difficult, I think, process.
3: And, and Lindsay Montgomery, this looks at the federal boarding schools, the ones that were overseen by the department over that period of time, not necessarily the ones that were run by religious institutions?
5: So there's a kind of complex relationship here between uh, the religious, uh, religious sects who ran uh, boarding schools and the federal government. So under the grants peace policy, they the federal government supported financially 367 boarding schools. And those boarding schools were run by either kind of secular uh, teachers and superintendents or by uh, various different Christian sects. So the Catholic church ran about 80 of these boarding schools um, and then various other ones were run um, by, by Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Methodist, Uh, etc. sex. So all of these boarding schools were funded by federal monies, but they were run variously by either the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or by by Christian sex.
3: And so there is, though there is still a question in terms of just the scope of this, correct? In terms of just how much the department's going to take on initially?
5: Absolutely. I mean, we're just talking about the boarding schools, the federal government also supported financially the funding of hundreds of what were called day schools on reservations throughout the United States. And these day schools followed the same assimilatory curriculum as all of the boarding schools. So if we loop those in and their records and their archives too, we're talking about an absolutely massive amount of uh, historical work and truth telling that needs to happen.
3: And there are some that remain open correct, um, Lindsay Montgomery, but they function very differently now?
5: Yes. Yeah, so today there are several boarding schools uh, like like Sherman uh, that remain open. Uh, there's about 73 boarding schools that are open today. Uh, 15 of them are still actual boarding schools. For example, um, the Santa Fe Indian School in New Mexico still has borders, um, whereas Uh, places like Sherman don't, Um, but their curriculums are really different now. Now they follow a kind of classic public school curriculum. They actually have programs that are oriented towards uh, supporting uh, Native culture and the expression uh, of Native beliefs and languages at these high schools. Uh, So it's it's a really different type of experience than what we're talking about. Um, Like Lauren's uh, great aunt would have would have kind of experienced at places like Carlisle.
3: We're talking with Lindsay Montgomery, William Bauer, and Lauren Peters, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Thomas writes, what kind of pushback are these investigations and Deb Holland getting from conservatives who don't want these kinds of stories to be told? William Bauer, are you hearing about pushback against this investigation, this comprehensive review that uh, Interior Secretary Holland has announced and launched?
2: I have not heard uh, in, any pushback, and I think maybe one reason for that is that uh, if, if people do know anything kind of about American Indian history, they might know something about, about boarding schools, right? So whenever I, I teach, you know, American Indian history here at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, I think that's the one lecture that they're always like, oh, yeah, I heard about boarding schools. And so I think, and I think people kind of understand the, the scope of some of what, uh, what happened at the, at the schools. Uh, I think what the investigation, I think, is going to reveal is is the magnitude and, and kind of and more information uh, about what happened at these places. And, and I think kind of get and I think getting to the kind of the reconciliation and the, and the truth of these things, I think, is the key part of, of the new investigation.
3: Well, this listener tweets, I hope these new investigations into boarding schools in Canada and the U.S. will uncover stories in Southern California. My grandparents attended Sherman Indian Boarding School. And their attendance is one reason our family lost our languages, Cahuilla and Serrano. My elder also tells stories about how abusive and terrifying these schools were for young Indigenous youth here in Southern California at St. Boniface Boarding School, or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, as well. The U.S. government has a responsibility to answer for these violent crimes against our children and ancestors. I do want to ask you, William Bauer, what does the state of California need to do as well as the U.S. in terms of understanding the legacy of its schools? Because there was at one point a shift to having states run them more directly, as I understand it. What kind of accounting do you think still needs to take place here? I
2: think this is, a, this is going to be a kind of a difficult thing. And I think it's going to be hard for it's going to be difficult, I think, for the tribe, for tribal nations in California and in the rest of the United States. Uh, to, to, to figure this out. I mean, I, I think that's the main thing that I think that my takeaway from, what my takeaway from this is, is that we have to kind of, that the United States and the state of California have to talk to tribes of, about their experiences uh, and their relationships with the schools, right? So in the past, the United States has often tried to just kind of uh, offer financial or monetary compensation for things like lost lands and treaty violations and that sort of thing. And then it treats it as and it almost kind of, it's it almost like kind of wiping you know, the, the one's hands clean, right? Once there's a kind of a payout then the federal government or the United States or a state doesn't have kind of an obligation to native peoples. Um, and so I don't know how to compensate people for the loss of our ancestors, right? I don't know how to compensate for the loss of language. Uh, and I don't know how to compensate for the kind of the pain and trauma that, that our communities currently have. And I think that's gonna be out of a really I'm not saying, I mean, yeah, and and so I think that that's going to have to be a hard conversation between the United States, the state of California, and tribal nations.
3: Lindsay Montgomery, Canada has set up this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Is that a model? Is that what you think should happen now?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think the TRC uh, that the Canadian government supported, um, which basically did a a kind of similar investigation to what Deb Holland is proposing here in the United States, between 2008 and 2015. Uh, and they, it, what the end result of that Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a series of uh, calls to action. Uh, calls to action uh, for both the federal government um, and for all sorts of institutions that they support. So institutions of higher learning um, and other uh, kinds of federally funded institutions um, to actually try to one, create more information Um, and spread information about the residential school system, um, but also to uh, have more resources be allocated to First Nations communities that Mm -hmm. would help them um, do do things like run their own schools, educate their own youth, uh, support support particularly uh, uh, orphans, native orphans um, who are typically swallowed up by the state, um, and so I think the TRC did really bring to light some um, important calls to actions to hold the Canadian government accountable. And I think we could use that as a model here in the U.S.
3: Lauren Peters, you've said that your aunt, great-great-aunt aunt, great Sophia will lead the other Alaskans out of that Carlisle Cemetery. What are you hoping this renewed attention, new attention, really, which I'm sure must be quite jarring in the sense of that it's so new to to some people uh, something that you've known for a long time what are you hoping the impact will be
4: well so sophia's is set a path for the other ones if they if they want to bring their children home the other families now that they, we have a pathway that they can see, and I'm will, willing to help anybody um, that wants to help bring their children home from hmm. Carlisle.
3: Lauren Peters, thank you so much for joining us. Lindsay Montgomery, William Bower as well. Really appreciate hearing your insights and experiences today. Thank you to our listeners for sharing theirs. And thank you to Susan Britton and Blanca Torres for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Nina King.